What's one of the what's one of the basic principles of the Reformation? Well, you you probably know several of them. We usually use Latin phrases, sola scriptura, right? The Bible alone. Well, that song we just sung is actually based on one of the solas. Sola Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory. And that song captures in a beautiful and powerful way that thought, a principle of the Reformation. Please turn in your Bibles. This is our last in a kind of a short sub-series from 1 Timothy 2, uh, 8 through 15 on men, women, and godliness in the church dealing specifically with uh, men and women, their relationships, and how that is to be conducted in the church. Uh, this was something that was important to the Apostle Paul. And it seems uh, many of these words that Paul wrote, Peter wrote, will we'll be referencing some of the other passages that we've looked at in, in previous weeks. They seem so foreign to us today so out of step with the times that we live in. Now, I have to ask you, because we need, we need to basically reorient our minds. Every week we come to church, it's basically a, a, a reality check, because all week long we have been bombarded with propaganda, all week long we've been by, bombarded by the world's worldview, <laughs> and we come back to Sunday and we come to church where we have to confront God's Word and it's a reality check. I, I once, I was talking to a high school kid, high school student, I'm sorry, kid, a high school student. And the student was asking, well, how do, how do I know what's right? How do I know what's true? I get messages all, you know, social media, school, everything bombarding me with information. How do I sort it out? And I said, well, Whatever the world tells you, just assume it's a lie. Well, okay, that's oversimplifying. I, I understand that's oversimplifying. But in this area, particularly, pretty much whatever the world is teaching us is a lie. And we need, to, we need the reality check of Scripture to come back and orient our minds, our hearts, our will, our lives according to God's plan— and not what the world tells us is right. By the way, this is not a new issue. Why would Paul be not be writing about this in the first century unless it was an issue in the first century? It's not just us. Anyway, here's what Paul writes, 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness." I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing 
if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Here we end reading of God's Word. Why take so much time dealing with a relatively short passage, only from verse 8 to verse 15? Why take four weeks to go through this passage? The answer is simple, but hard for us to accept. It's that since the time of the fall, the relationship between men and women has been turned upside down. Even our culture talks about the battle of the sexes. Yeah, it's turned upside down. The origin of that battle is found in the book of Genesis, in the story of the fall. And we've been dealing with that ever since. We in our fallen nature are not able to fill the creational roles that God established. However, in the work of Christ, we are being remade in such a way that we can show true godliness in the church through living out the divine pattern. But the work of Christ comes up against powerful enemies. I mentioned this in, the, in leading into our scripture reading, how the world teaches us one thing. The world tells us that men and women should relate to each other in a certain way. And, of course, we've had the influence for, well, pretty much most of my lifetime, and probably your lifetime. We've had the influence of radical feminism. We've had, that has led to other expressions. And actually, I, I would say it culminates, and it, it both originates and culminates in an exaltation of self. The exaltation of self. Our primary question is not now, what does God want me to do and how does God want me to live, but how can I achieve my own self-worth? How can I demonstrate my own self-worth? How can I find happiness for myself? How can I, how can I show that I am, am an important person? We have replaced God with the idol of self, the almighty I. And both men and women fall into this. It is the chief enemy of the instruction that we have in Scripture. Yes, I could point the finger at feminism, but before feminism, this was still an issue. And the issue is rooted not in just a political movement or a social movement, those are expressions of the root problem. The root problem is the idol of self. That's the root problem. I'm going to give you the end of the sermon right up front. In order to achieve the godliness in the church that Paul writes about, men, women, and he's looking and he's saying this is how we need to behave so that there is godliness, so that there is a, this is a godly way of, of living and, and acting in church, in the context of the church. If we are to pursue that, here's the application of the sermon, it requires the crucifixion of self. Again, 
for both men and women. It requires the crucifixion of self. Okay, I gave you the end of the sermon. We can go now. Well, now there's more to it. Let's review quickly some of the things that we've talked about. We talked about marriage and men and women, the relationship of men and women in, in God's original creation. In the fall, what happened to us in the fall that has brought about uh, the, the, uh, the, the difficulties that we have now. And what is Christ doing in the work of redemption that affects us as men and women in our relationships together? First of all, in creation, marriage was a creation ordinance. Now, what's a creation ordinance? There's a, maybe a, a handy way of, of thinking of this. Creation ordinances, as the name implies, are established at the time of creation, but they are the moral principles, the law, the moral law. Before there was the Ten Commandments, there were creation ordinances. And they were given at a time when Adam did not know sin. Adam was still in his state of innocence. And so they are framed in that, in that context. But other creation ordinances might be the, the ordinance of work. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it. That's the ordinance of work. There's the ordinance of the Sabbath. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Why? Because in six days... God made the heavens and the earth. He sanctified the seventh day. That is a creation ordinance. And marriage, the creation of men and women, the bringing of them together, the two shall be one flesh. Marriage is a creation ordinance. And men and women were made in order to do this, in order particularly that together— they could fulfill God's uh, purpose in creation. They could fulfill the mandate that God gave. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, but also to have dominion over all the creatures. Remember, Adam by himself can't do this. And that's what's wrong with the, the creation until God made woman. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. It is not good for the man to be alone. Remember those, those that sequence in the opening chapters. Adam needs the suitable helper in order to fulfill his created purpose. God brings him the woman whom Adam names Eve. By the way, the naming is a function of dominion. When Adam gives Eve her name, she is the mother of all living. Her name is Eve. He is exercising his headship over her and over the creation. Remember, in creation, God also establishes archetypal roles, the archetypal patterns. Adam and Eve both serve as archetypal patterns. Now, what is an archetype? The original pattern, this is a dictionary definition, the original pattern or model from which all things of the same kind are copied or on which they are based, a model or first form, a prototype. 
Well, in that respect, then, we can see this. When, when Paul writes in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and he refers specifically to, uh, to the woman, uh, the woman was made second. Adam was made first. The woman was made second. There's an archetypal pattern that Paul is referring to here. When the woman is the one who was first deceived, there's an archetypal pattern that influences and affects us today. God has set these patterns and set the model. In the fall, uh, in, in creation, we have the creation of Adam and Eve for God's purpose, and together they are to fulfill the creation mandates. But then we come to the fall. Satan doesn't come to Adam directly, Adam who is directly the head over the creation, and the one with whom the covenant of works is made. Adam comes to, or Satan comes to Adam indirectly through Eve, and he first deceives Eve. She, in turn, gives fruit to Adam, and he eats the fruit that was forbidden. As a result of their rebellion against God, sin enters into the world. Sin enters into their hearts. A sense of shame is exhibited almost immediately as they hear God, and they cover themselves because they were ashamed of their nakedness. There is a fall of human nature and a curse on creation that complicates everything. It complicates, in our purposes today, it complicates the relationship of men and women and purpose, uh, and the purpose for which they were made. Now, exercising headship over the creation for Adam is going to be a struggle. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In the sweat of your brow, you will make your food. And you're going to have suffering. There are going to be thorns. It's going to be difficult. And at the end of it, you die and your body returns to dust. Well, that's certainly optimistic, isn't it? And Eve, you're going to have pain in childbearing, and your, your nature will be such that you do not want to, that your interests and your desires are contrary to your husband's, where there was harmony intended in the creation, now there's going to be conflict. But he will rule over you. There's, a, there's a, a hint here that the headship of the husband now is tinged by an authoritarian harshness and a conflict between his headship and the desire of the woman which goes contrary to that. And yes, that is the origin of the battle, isn't it? It wasn't feminism, but this... This is where the battle begins. But there's also redemption, and there's a hint of redemption even in that creation or in that story of the fall. Because as God speaks to the woman, and as he speaks also to the serpent, he says the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The serpent will bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. One inflicts a painful wound on the other, but the other 
destroys the serpent. And that's why Paul, when he comes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, yet he says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. This is another, this is another archetypal pattern. The very function of bearing children, be, though it is now tinged with pain and danger, it also is the means that God will use to bring his son into the world who will redeem the children of Adam and Eve from their sins and restore lost paradise. We are new creatures in Christ. Think of the implications. Adam's nature has been affected by the, cur- by the fall. He, his headship is corrupted. His life is difficult. His work is d- difficult. He's not absolved from the, the need to work. He still has to work. He still has to exercise some kind of headship over the creation, but it's hard and frustrating, and, and at the end he dies. But in Christ, he is a new creation. We are new creatures. Eve, the daughters of Eve, who trust in Christ, are new creatures. See, that new creation answers the issue of what happened to my nature as a result of the fall. In Adam, we fall. But in Christ, we are made alive and we are made new creatures. In redemption, there is a new pattern to follow. Christ and the church become the new archetypes. Christ and the church become the pattern that we are to follow, both as men and as women. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. That's an overview. Creation, the fall, redemption. And all of these things are present in our passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul references all three of these elements in that passage. Well, let's break it down now, and we're going to look at some of the other passages and remember some of the other passages we've looked at, one in 1 Peter chapter 3 and one in in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, I mean uh, Ephesians uh, 5. Paul starts with men. Men. And he doesn't really say a lot here, but we need to unpack this in its context. Pray without anger and quarreling. Why would you be angry and quarreling while you're praying? Because of the fall. Because of sin. Because of the curse. That's ultimately where all the anger and quarreling comes from. And by the way, James says, what does, where, where does the fighting come from? Where does the competition come from? Where does the strife come from? Aren't you all seeking yourselves? Aren't you all seeking your own interests? Anger 
and quarreling. Anger is something that is within us, but the quarreling refers to our relationships with others. Anger, personal conflict, and the quarreling, they are the results of fall and the curse. And in Christ's redemptive work, we are given grace to overcome anger and to restore personal relationships, cease the quarreling. But it's especially relevant in this context of marriage. I, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but guys, have you ever just really felt angry at your wife over something? No? Wow, okay. No, I, well, I did say don't raise your hands, okay. Yeah, we're, we're Presbyterians. We do things on the inside. We don't shout amen. And maybe we raised, maybe raised your hand a little. When you bring your anger and your frustration because of the fall, because of the curse, when you bring that into church and you attempt to worship God and to pray and lead in prayer while your heart is filled with anger, and very often it's anger at the one who is the closest to you, the one whose nature now is contrary. Your prayers go no further than the ceiling. Peter reminds us, husbands, you are to live with your wife with understanding, honoring her as the weaker vessel, and he says, lest your prayers be hindered. And I think when we put those two passages together, we, we see that Paul, well, yes, you can apply this generally, pray without anger and quarreling, but it's specifically in this context of men, women, godliness in the church. We're cautioned in Scripture in Ephesians Chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Brothers, when you show up to church and you're still angry over something that happened and your heart is resentful and you're quarreling, you're in a mood to fight, to snap, you are giving place for the devil. And that doesn't belong in church. It doesn't belong anywhere. But especially as we come together in church. Paul isn't inventing this statement about being angry and do not sin. He's quoting actually from Psalm 4, verse 4. The writer of Proverbs 19:11 says this, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is, it is his glory to overlook an offense. You understand, brothers, that sometimes you just need to bite your tongue? And you just need to say, yes, that hurt. But I'm not going to take the bait. I'm not going to make it worse. I'm going to overlook. And I want you to think of how many sins Christ 
has forgiven you and has overlooked. We are to love as Christ loved. We are to forgive as God forgives. There are very powerful statements in Scripture that remind us, brothers, and it really seems to be kind of stark and shocking that if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. That is... That is awesome. That is a warning. So when we come to church and we are angry and we are quarreling, we are not lifting up holy hands. We are lifting up hands of murderers and haters and unforgiving, resentful people. And brothers, it has no place. That's what Paul says to men. Now, that's what he says in this passage. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 7 that we are to live in understanding of our wives and show honor to her. I would say, what does that mean? What does it mean to, to live in understanding or live with understanding? First of all, understand what the Bible says about these things. Understand, I know preachers get paid to stand up here and flap our gums for, you know, 35 minutes, and it's all too easy to say, nice sermon, and then you go out the door, and a half hour from now you can barely remember anything. But take these things to heart. Understand the dynamics of male-female relations. Understand the origin. Understand God's purpose and what happened to us in the fall and what Christ is achieving in us in his work of redemption. That's part of living in understanding with understanding. But understand your own wife as well. She is an individual person. She has her own personality, and, and you love that personality in some respects. In some respects, you find it really hard to get along with. But you need to live with understanding. And in understanding, you understand your need for grace and her need for grace that mercy is to be renewed every morning, just like God does for us, and that you are heirs together of the grace of life. God has brought you together to live out your lives as one flesh and to be heirs of eternal life. And, and brothers, in the light of that, everything else pales into insignificance. Much more could be said, but I will spare you. It's already. <laughs> Time is fleeting. She is to be honored as the one who enables you to do God's will. And here's something where we do need to counter when, when men and women come together in marriage, God's original creation ordinance, well, actually the Sabbath was the original one, but when men and women come together, 
she needs to understand her role is not headship. You are not two equals. There is a head and there is an enabler. There is a head given that responsibility by God and created by God for that purpose. And there is one who is the suitable helper, who is the enabler created by God for that purpose and so constructed for that purpose. That runs counter to everything that we are told. But let me tell you something, both men and women, happiness is not found outside of the boundaries that God established. Happiness is not found by transgressing those boundaries and ignoring the creational purpose that God has in for both men and women. She is to be honored as the one who enables you. I, I used to preach almost every Mother's Day from Proverbs 31, and then the women of the church rebelled and told me if I ever did it again, they'd be looking for a new pastor because it it made them feel so in, inadequate. Well, I wasn't trying to make them feel inadequate. I actually think it would be a useful study to see, to read and study Proverbs 31, the passage about the godly wife, the, you know, the virtuous woman. But look at that passage for what it says about her family as well. Here's what it says about her family, some of the things. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Her husband has his, his stature in the community, in the, in the city in which they live, has been enhanced so much by her work that he is known. Part of his reputation as he sits with the elders and decides the future of the city the, and cases that that come before the elders of the city to be uh, to be uh, resolved, his reputation rests in part on her character and what she is doing in her family and for her family. This is a great picture of the wife as the enabler. A few verses later, her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. And this is what her husband says. This isn't just a nice little Hallmark card on Mother's Day. This I can imagine him saying this to her in the presence of the other elders of the city. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. I want you to say that to your wife today. Many women are excellent, but you surpass them all. Those words are directed to the woman who understands her function and dedicates herself to the betterment of her family. And again, read that passage for what it says about her character 
and her dedication and all of her wisdom, all of her energies, all of her, if you can, if you will pardon me from using this term, all of her powers are dedicated to the enhancement and betterment of her family. And this is where she finds her purpose, and this is where he is completed by her. Love your wives as Christ loved, loves the church. Paul says Christ gave himself for the church, husbands to give themselves for their wives, to love unconditionally. It's really amazing sometimes. Why do you love her? Oh, I don't know. Well, is she a particularly lovely person? Well, she's really hot. That's not what I mean. Well, maybe a little bit, but not, not entirely. Love is un the kind of love that, that Scripture calls us to is an unconditional love. It's a love that's rooted in character, a love that's rooted in our own hearts and is not changed by circumstances. That's Christ's love for us. It's not changed by circumstances. Remember, the love of the Lord endures forever. The steadfast love of God endures forever. Well, let's talk about women. Uh, done with the guys, I'll tell you. Paul actually has a lot more to say about women, but that may be because of the complications that come because of the fall and because of the order of creation. First of all, both Paul and Peter urge women to be modest in their appearance, to use self-control, and to develop the inner beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit and also to dedicate themselves to good works. Now, when you say good works in a Reformed church, there, there often is a kind of a negative reaction because we know we're not saved by good works. But Paul and Peter both tell us that we should be pursuing good works. And particularly in this passage, a woman develops an inner beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit and dedicates herself, her clothing is not the clothing of gold and pearls and hairdos and so forth. Her clothing and what she is attractive for is for good works. Paul says these good works are, in God's sight, very precious. Very precious. It is the antithesis of the world's image of femininity. A quiet, gentle spirit dedicated to good works. Again, this is illustrated in Proverbs 31. It is the antithesis of the world's image of femininity. Women are called in Scripture to respect God's order. True godly influence, true godly power, again, 
comes when the boundaries are observed. And this is why over and over in Peter, in Paul, in, in, in whether we're dealing with 1 Timothy chapter 2 or Ephesians chapter 5, Paul emphasizes over and over and over again submission to the husband. Why? Because in doing so, you are respecting God's order, his creational order, his redemptive order as well. What we often miss sight of because of the influence of ungodly teaching in our world that promises you happiness and fulfillment if you go your own way and live your own life and and be true to yourself and all of that, it's one of Satan's lies. Satan is not your buddy. Satan is not looking out for you. Satan does not desire your happiness. Satan desires your destruction. He is not your friend. The woman of Proverbs 31 is actually a powerful and influential person, but all within the boundaries of God's intention and family well-being. Women are called to submit as the church submits. And I, I you know, I was thinking when I, when I was putting this outline together, the church doesn't submit very well, does it? The church is kind of a mess. Large parts of the church have fallen into unbelief and apostasy. The church struggles with submission, but nevertheless, it is called to submit to the headship of Christ. This gets me back to the point I made before at the beginning. In all of these things, there is a common element. It is not about us. Our world teaches us that it's all about you and me. It's all about the self. It's all about the, the almighty I. And that's one of Satan's lies that leads to destruction. It is not about us. The husband is to actually sacrifice himself for his wife. But he is doing so under the headship of Christ. And so ultimately, it's about him, isn't it? Ultimately, it is about God. And it requires of both men and women the crucifixion of self. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 24 now the works, and, and as I read this list, think of how many of these things uh, apply and can be applied to the context of men and women in marriage and in church. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Oh, lifting up hands without anger. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Crucified. Notice he uses that word, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucify the self. The recapturing of godliness in the church as it is demonstrated in men and women and their relationships in the church, it cannot be achieved until we crucify the self. It is a part of our sanctification. The, the call for men and women in, in living in the God-ordained patterns of, of creation and redemption, that call is a call to be sanctified, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to put to death the deeds of the sinful nature, to live by the Spirit. Everything that we understand about the dynamics of sanctification come to a sharp focus in this context of marriage. It's not about us. The world, the flesh, and Satan have told us over and over again, it's all about me. And that is a lie. Brothers, it is first of all all about God and giving glory to God, and then it is about loving your wife. Women, it is not about your emancipation. It is not about your liberty. It's not about your liberation. It's about Christ as head of the church and following that pattern of the church and Christ, replicating that pattern in your marriage and in the church. And that calls for the crucifixion of self. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we realize these are immensely important and serious issues that you have called us to examine today in the text of Scripture. We pray, Father, that you would take these words of the Scripture and bind them to our hearts and help us to live out the pattern that you ordained. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.